Live from Washington, D.C., it's Quintessential Listening, Poetry Online Radio. QLPOR, as it's widely known, features a bevy of poets, spoken word artists, and live poetry readings with best-selling authors. Your host is Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the program. My guest is critically acclaimed poet, storyteller, essayist, and author, Roberto Carlos Garcia. He is founder of the Cooperative Press, Get Fresh Books Publishing, and currently serves as a New Jersey State Council of the Arts Poetry Fellow. He has authored five books, including What Can I Tell You? The Selected Poems of Roberto Carlos Garcia, published by Flower Song Press in 2023, and his forthcoming essay collection, Traveling Freely, which will be published by Northwestern University Press in 2024. Roberto, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Let's begin this poetic journey. What is poetry? This The answer to this question, for me, changes almost every time I'm asked it, depending on where I'm at. A poet whom I, I deeply respect, the poet Willie Perdomo, I was looking through some of his interviews for a project, and someone asked him this question, and, and he responded in that same way. It's always changing for me. Right now, poetry is it's a light in the dark right now. It's a light to follow. Certain circumstances, just things that have to do with life have me thinking very reflectively lately and just thinking about the books I've published and, but more importantly, the work I still want to do, the books I'm still working on and trying to find my way to quote unquote, finishing them. Most poets will tell you a a poetry collection is never really done. We just let it go. at a certain point as these days for me poetry is a light in the dark it's a way through and in reading different poetry collections poetry collections by Latasha Nevada Diggs and Yesenia Montilla and a couple books that I've had the pleasure of publishing as a publisher Future Britannic by Christina Olivares and The Little Deaths by Mercy Tullis Bukhari. A lot of these books, Fierce Geometry by Mary Brancaccio, Papi Pichon by Dimitri Reyes. These poetry collections are like a, a light in the dark for me, a way forward by sitting with these poems and listening to other voices and seeing what poets, whether it's their first book, their second book, their third book, what they're doing is guiding me through my own processes. My answer today is poetry is a light in the dark. Tell me more about the light in the dark philosophy. Flesh that out for me. In life, I I remember this distinctively. When I first started working professionally and I was just struggling with training, it was just a job. It wasn't anything big, but I'll never forget the gentleman who was training me. He used to call me baby boy, his big, tall brother from North Carolina. And he always called me baby boy because I was a kid. 
And he said, life is going to be peaks and valleys. And you're going to have your moments when you're shining in the sun. And there's going to be other moments when you're making your way in the dark. You got to find that light in the dark and, and get through it. I, I'm, I'm a pessimistic optimist. The glass is half empty first, but it's also half full after I think about the fact that it's empty. So I always am looking for that light in the dark. I had COVID for the first time in 2021, and it was really bad. I was in ICU seven days. It was real iffy. It was real. And then got out of that, thought I had bounced back miraculously well, but then I started noticing some things, foggy brain, et cetera. And then called it a second time, almost a year later. And I, this time I didn't go to the hospital, but the after effects of it were way more pronounced. And just dealing with those things and life in general, sometimes it gets, it gets heavy. It gets, it can, you can feel like you're in a dark place. For me now, poetry is it's this light in the dark, this way through this way through so that when i say that light in the dark is very spiritual also because poetry is a sacred thing it's it's uh, especially if you are called to be a writer because being a writer is a calling and being a poet uh, in particular that it's so demanding um to be a poet the, the attention you have to pay to words the time you have to sit with ideas and feelings and thoughts that entire process, the entire faith of it, the entire sacredness of it is like a light in the dark. It's something we can hang on to. Roberto, knowing what you know about the world, yeah, knowing what you know about poetry, is it important? Oh, it is vital. It is vital. There's a quote. Who was it? William Carlos Williams. Uh, Maybe Hilda Doolittle, countless people, something to the effect of so few people understand poetry, but they die for the lack of not knowing what's there. Something along those lines. It's, it's vital because it's an aspect of ourselves that we never really think about until we need it, until we need it. And I'm going to give you an example. Uh, I've been married, uh, it'll be 21 years. Congratulations. Thank you. And when my wife and I were first dating and and when we were first married, I would write her these little cheesy poems. And they were like, roses are red, violets are blue. I'm so glad that I met you. Those types of poems. I know those. Oh, man, she loved these poems, right? And she would show them to her girlfriends and, oh, eat your heart out, girls. And they would be like, oh, oh, you're the poet. And these are, these are like my, this is me writing a poem that I know she'll get, that she'll understand because she's just not a a person to sit down with a poetry collection. Mm -hmm. When I show her, let's say some poems from my books and she's, I don't know, that sounds so complicated. What's this and what's that? And I'm like, all right, let me get you, let me write you this poem. And it'll be something along those lines of roses and red vines. But she loves that. Mm-hmm. 
You know what I mean? It touches her. But then there are other people who turn to the page for something a little more complex. Right? A little deeper. But they're both still poetry. They both still touch the heart and soul. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Yes, sir. Another example I can give you is Rupi Carr is a very popular poet. Mm -hmm. I personally think it's wonderful that so many young people can connect to what she's writing. Okay? And that's poetry. I don't care what anybody says. That's poetry. Okay? This young sister is expressing herself. She's putting her heart on the line. She's sharing. And people are connecting to that. Right? But then you have a whole other spectrum where you have somebody like, I don't know, a T.S. Eliot or somebody whose stuff is super dense. And guess what? Somebody loves that. Somebody's connecting to that. And so it is vitally important because this is soul work. This is soul work. This is touching the very essence of people. And I think this is why art is important altogether, be it music, be it novels, essays, short stories, all kinds of compositions, whatever you want to say, be it a libretto, be it a concerto, be it a a group of young brothers with a cipher on the corner spitting their lyrics, whatever it might be. This is poetry. This is art. This is why in every discipline it's called the poetics of the discipline. You know what I'm saying? It's this necessary thing. We humans need it. And I think that today, in particular today, the state that this country is in, the way the hatred is just ripping this, it's always been fighting to tear us apart. But I think right now, I don't think we've seen this kind of out and out hatred in a few, in a couple decades. And maybe there we have some ancestors who were like, this is tame compared to what we went through. We know we have some descendants that have seen a lot worse than what's happening now, but this is still bad. And we need it. We need poetry right now to really speak to our hearts and open us up. And hopefully help us listen to each other and feel each other's pain. Oh, it is, it is so important for those reasons and so many more. Please share with me an early experience where you learned that poetic language had power. One of the first times was listening to these boleros, right? These slow jams that my grandmother would play every Sunday. And a bolero is like a slow jam in Spanish, right? So we're Caribbean. My family's from Dominican Republic. I was born here in in Harlem, right? But... My family's from DR, and she would listen to these these songs, and I would hear the emotion in these men's voices, right? And that was like my introduction into how these kind of very imagistic, vivid imagery in these love songs in Spanish, how they could just touch people. It would be my grandmother, my aunts, sister friends, as, uh, as the saying goes and all of a sudden the needle touched the record and the whole mood changed their whole world changed but I'm just sitting there absorbing it and so that was one of the first kind of ways 
that I realized, man, this person, not only the words they're saying, but their voice is playing with people's feelings, is moving people. And then I was always very curious. And so I would want to know the meaning of certain words, but my mother would never tell me the meaning of a word. She would always send me to the dictionary. She would always be like, look it up, look it up. And in turn, my vocabulary, I was the the kid that was using words that were just like, why are you even saying that word, bro? That's I was that kid, right? That people would always make fun of me for using a word that was really big. Like, what is that? What do you mean? And so I also started to realize, okay, I know something you don't. <laughs> like, I know something you don't. And then it just dovetailed because my mom, she had British detective novels. She had uh, Langston Hughes poetry. She had Robert Frost. When my mom came uh, to this country, it was like the 60s. It was a radical revolutionary time. And you can't live in Harlem and not be connected to that. So there was always books everywhere. And so I really got a taste of a lot of different languages and the way different people speak. And so I was immediately just immersed into words. And the fact that my grandmother, like a lot of immigrants of her generation, were like, I'm not learning English because I'm out. I'm leaving. I'm going to be here for a short time. And then when things calm down and back in the, the DR, I'm going back. But nope, she ended up staying. But in the meanwhile, I was her translator. When Her eyesight wasn't uh, too great, so I would read things aloud to her in Spanish. And so I, I, I quickly picked up these distinctions in language. And not just to say the English from my textbooks, but the English we were talking out on the streets. And then the Spanish from her magazines and her newspapers, but then also the kind of chopped up Spanish we were speaking out on the streets. And also the Creolized Spanish that we spoke as Caribbean sp- Spanish speakers. It's almost the equivalent of the Creolized English that you hear in Jamaica, Trinidad and whatever. So. I just had a lot of different sources to think and, and I guess, inputs to think about the power of language and the word. And then when hip hop came out, forget it. That was it. Like, now I had to put all of that to work because I was definitely going to be rhyming. I was definitely rhyming with the fellas out there and doing that kind of stuff. Roberto, what do you write about? What are the predominant themes of your work? Life. When I was a baby writer, I remember reading a part. Somebody gave me a letter, Rookie's Letters to a Young Poet, and where he says to this young poet, "Don't if you think you have nothing to write about, you're just like, you're lazy. Think about your life, the treasure trove that is your life and the human condition, right? That's what I write about. A lot of my themes are my experiences with anti-blackness in this uh, Afro-Caribbean Latino culture, which contains a great amount of anti-blackness that I experienced growing up. I write a lot about the journey through the African diaspora, right? So today is 
Afro Descendants Day, International Afro Descendants Day. So if you're a descendant of Africans, whether through the transatlantic slave trade or whether that be through the process of migration, because a lot of people also don't know that a lot of Africans were moving around the world as well. It wasn't all slavery. Today is a day to recognize that in the Americas, whether that be North America, Central America, South America, and then the Caribbean, that journey here, that process here as an Afro-descendant, I had to learn to navigate those different worlds because you can be Black in the United States and then you can be Black in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. And then you can be Black in Colombia and you can be Black in Cuba. And you can be black in the Dominican Republic, which is a whole nother mess, right? So those are some of the things I like to write about. But then also family and experiences. James Baldwin, one of my greatest teachers, always taught me that if you're going to write about anything, you better interrogate that thing within yourself first and foremost. I'm always writing about these things and interrogating them through the lens and the filter of my own experience, whether that be with family, whether that be in in institutions, whether that be how it looks reflected back in the world. And love, grief, and loss, that's another aspect of things I write about. Growing up, we just, we lost a lot of people. We just, we just lost a lot of people whether it was to the drug game, whether it was to prison, whether it was to violence. And then as we've gotten older, the consequences and repercussions of certain lifestyles can catch up to people also. And so we've just lost a lot of folks. I write about anti-Blackness, but then also the discovery and embrace and acceptance and love of Blackness, right? of being an Afro-descendant, of coming out of that experience and honoring what my ancestors endured and survived for me to be here, right? But then also love, grief, and loss. Yeah. Please share a poem. This poem is called Duplicity. Hard truth. First thing I do as I breathe into a room is search for brown and black faces bobbing in America's post-racial waters. I swim peripheral glances, backstroke being ignored, weighed on a chair in a corner of the room and chat up the help until some not brown or black one tosses me an integration lifeline. Hard truth. Light and dark sparkle the waters like tinsel. Pretty chimera. No one really has to. Does anyone really have to talk to me? The purpose of that particular piece. So when I got into the corporate arena, when I started working in a corporate you know, professional setting, one of the things that I noticed right away. Now, let me, I want to also preface this by saying that I was naive growing up in that where I grew up, there was always 
black and Latino people around. Asians, uh, all kinds of Caribbeans. There were very few white people around, in particular in my part of New York, right? And so I, unless it was the cops. <laughs> so I remember when I, I moved to Jersey and then, okay, there I started to see a lot more white people. I was like, this is so weird. Then when I went back to New York, I, I was, and I went, let's say, downtown or whatever. I was always very surprised that I didn't see as many people of color as before. And I was always shocked by that because I thought New York was ours, basically. That was my experience. But in any event, as I started getting into other spaces like college and then spaces like the workforce, I began to realize that there were spaces that were like all white. And I would be the only person of color there. I would be the only person that wasn't white there, right? And then that came with its own type of thing because people would not acknowledge me or, or talk to me or address me. They would ignore me. And so I, I guess enough of these moments built up where I, I wanted to write about it because it's such a strange phenomenon. I, I was at a, at a poetry retreat and me too. I think there was like four black people there. It was like four of us. And we were like in different parts of the room. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, let's all sit together. I'm trying to round people up. <laughs> let's not let them split us up like this. But it was interesting because I could tell people were like hesitant. You're sitting around and nobody's really engaging you. And I'm like, this is some bullshit. And then finally, with me and this young sister, she's a wonderful poet herself. We're sitting there talking. I'm like, why did you wait so long to talk to me? We've been here like two days and you waited all this time to engage me. She started laughing. She said, I don't know. I was trying to like, wait and see what would happen. I said, look, we, we got to come together quicker because why are we sitting here quiet being ignored, right? So the poem is born out of that kind of phenomenon of being the only person of color in a white space and whether it's because they don't engage with people of color, they never have, they're not sure how to, because, which is not surprising at all. Let me tell you, this is, but it's just a phenomenon that I've encountered many times and I was just driven to write about it and put it down on paper because I'm also always, <laughs> I guess in writing, I'm like, I know I'm not crazy. I know I'm not, let me write this and, and just make sure I'm not losing it. So that's the impetus behind that is having had that experience of being the only person of color in the room and not being engaged. Your newest poetry collection the selected poems of Roberto Carlos Garcia. What inspired it? What brought it together? So I'm working on a lot of prose right now. So I have an essay collection forthcoming and I'm working on a novel and some short stories. And it's gonna it's probably gonna be a little while before I publish another poetry collection. I was going to publish a collection of translations that I did of Pablo Neruda's poems from Spanish to English, but getting the permissions was tricky. It was difficult. And 
my publisher, knowing my plans, said, why don't you publish a selected? He said, I'll, I'll put out a selected of your work. And this way people can find all of your work in one place. And you can focus on your prose projects, but you left the people with something so that they, they want to sample your work. They have everything from 2016 up till 2020 and they can, they can chew on that while you're doing the prose thing. Cause prose takes longer, at least for me, it's a long process. So that's what inspired it is just having some of these poems all in one place so that people can easily have access to it and see the chart, the progress or how I've grown as a poet. The title, what can I tell you? <laughs> Break that down for me. So there's a poem in the collection with that title. It's an Ars Poetica. And so the, the, it's an art of poetry. And Ars Poetica is almost like a blueprint for how to write a poem or create a work of art. And I named it after that because in that Ars Poetica, I'm really wrestling with the fact of poetry, of being in love with this art that is so challenging and difficult and often materially it's not necessarily rewarding like that you know what i mean there's no pot of gold or anything like you write a great poem success a few people like it they come up to you they're like oh my gosh that poem is my life i've been very blessed to have people read my second book black maybe and come to me and say this book is my life growing up other people of other black diasporas that experienced the things that go on in that book, whether it be anti-Blackness and violence and racism, et cetera. And so that's rewarding in itself. There's a clip of, is it Nikki Giovanni or is it uh, Alice Walker? I think it's Nikki Giovanni. And she's saying, if you're going to be a poet, it's not rewarding materially. Very few people are going to know who you are. <laughs> Be ready for that, right? So the poem is, is in, a, in a way, dealing with that. So what better way to position the book than with that title? But then also, as a poet, we struggle with the fact we love words. We love language and playing with words. And yet words are so insufficient a medium to communicate the feelings we're trying to communicate. And so what can I tell you? What, what can I tell you? Hence the title. Is it, what can I tell you that you already don't know? Or what can I tell you to add to what you already know? Which one? Yes. And yes. <laughs> okay. How often have you find yourself in a situation where you say something to someone and they're like, are you for real? Are you for real right now? Yeah. Is that true? And they're like, why would something like that happen? You're like, what can I tell you? What can I tell you, man? I'm telling you what it is. This is what it is. I'm telling you. 
I'm, how often? And so what can I tell you is also that. It's almost like this response to a kind of disbelief, right? And so that's, that's a part of it too, yeah. The cover of your book is quite striking. How is it created? So that is a painting I did probably, man, maybe seven years ago with oils, oil paints on acrylic. And they are poppies. The plants are poppies. And culturally in America, we tend to associate poppies with heroin, with drugs. But in other places, it's not like that. In other cultures, poppies can mean rebirth, right? They could also mean death. They can mean love. They can mean grief. And so they encompass so many of the themes in the book that I decided to go with the poppies for that reason. It's a beautiful cover. Thank you. I appreciate it. Please share another poem. So I will share what can I tell you. <laughs> Give the audience uh, a little bit of that. What can I tell you? An Ars Poetica. I confess. From you I learned sweat is poison as well as nectar. And there is no good word for how I linger as you exhale. I confess. I am a cracked mirror and you are a stone, a bird, starlight tickling the fractures. From you I learned jilting doesn't require stepping away. I confess. I drink your furious glow like the color black, like a poet whose mouth is a bucket, whose head is an ocean of roses. And so the speaker in the poem is wrestling with the unrequited love, I guess that is poetry. Right? And how it does not necessarily give the speaker back everything he wants it to. You know? I asked you earlier, what is poetry? And you shared a very eloquent answer. But there are people out there who believe that poetry is dying, Roberto. Do you agree or disagree with this statement and why? Poetry is definitely not dying. If you look at the sheer number of poetry collections that are published yearly, it's not dying. What is, however, that great risk are people who know how to engage with poetry, who can pick up a poetry collection and say... These are the themes of this, of these poems, of this book. It'd be nice if they knew what a sonnet was and all of this and that, but not required. Just read a few poems and say, oh, these poems are about heartbreak. Or these poems are about, you know, a person trying to survive every day. Oh, the, just to be able to engage with poems in that way, a readership that can do that. And, and I'm not even going to say that it's not because people lack intelligence, et cetera. I'm an educator. And I tell young people all the time, I say, don't let anybody question your intelligence. 
what people really are questioning is your interest level. Are you interested in any of this stuff? <laughs> so how do we keep people interested in what poetry is doing? And in order to be interested in what poetry is doing, people need to be really interested and open about what's happening in their own lives. But then what's happening in the world. And we live in a society culturally a capitalistic spin that hamster wheel society where when it's time for people to catch their breath they're just trying to catch their breath we're, the society we live in isn't making space for people to appreciate art and poetry and so poetry is alive and well but because the capitalism is squeezing the life out of our society it's like who gets to participate? Please share a poem. Self-portrait. I am that I am what America TVs me. Monstrous chameleon. Schizophrenic Janice. Transformed, transmuted. Switching black image for your mind's white eye. I. I line up the game winner. Shoot it! I stand, arms raised. I am on the corner. Don't shoot. I stand, arms raised. The crowd gives a standing ovation. I stand, mic in hand, arms raised. I am a god. Now hurry up with my damn massage. The crowd sings along. I am unseen. I am conjured. I am that I am the entertainment you seek when you need to dance, to sport, to laugh, to cry. To feel like God. I am that I am what America's narrative makes me. A struggle ensues. A brief altercation. And I stand as death's bride. Arms raised. Arms wide. Black Play-Doh for your mind's white. I. Speaking of sharing it more than one time, please read it again. Self-portrait. An American Black. I am that I am what America TVs me. Monstrous chameleon. Schizophrenic Janice. Transformed, transmuted, switching black image for your mind's white eye. I. I line up the game winner. Shoot it! I stand, arms raised. I am on the corner. Don't shoot! I stand arms raised. The crowd gives a standing ovation. I stand, mic in hand, arms raised. I am a god. Now hurry up with my damn massage. The crowd sings along. I am unseen. I am conjured. I am that I am the entertainment you seek when you need to dance, to sport, to laugh, to cry, to feel like God. I am that I am what America's narrative makes me. A struggle ensues, a brief altercation, and I stand as death's bride. Arms raised, arms wide. Black Play-Doh for your mind's white. I. That's a very powerful piece. And what I'd like to know is, 
Is writing a poem letting your guard down or building a wall? I think it's both. I think it's a little bit of both. Even though it takes a great deal of vulnerability to keep accessing what it is that's driving the poem, the emotional content of the poem, what brings you to the page is that's letting your guard down. But then you have to keep a certain wall so that it doesn't become propaganda. So that there is emotional content, but that there's also depth to it and layers to it. Tell me about the propaganda. Flesh that out for me. So it's it's the difference, I think, between... And sometimes it's okay to just stand up there and say Black Lives Matter and qualified immunity. Have oversight in the community of policing. Okay? Body cameras, all of that stuff, right? That's okay. You, we need to be doing that. But I can't title a poem Five Points of Change, give you that list, and say, this is a poem. No, these are very necessary steps the community needs to take to stop this police violence. You, you know what I mean? And so in the same way that the oppressor uses language as propaganda, as poets, we can't fall into that trap. We need, uh, as writers and artists, we need to show humanity the human cost if you will, you know, the human cost. All great writers have great writing influences. Please share some of yours and what makes them great in your eyes. James Baldwin is one of my chief influences and inspirations. Because when you talk about bringing down the wall to write and that same relentless energy that Baldwin brings to society, to humanity, he first inflicted upon himself. And I think that this is why so often his sentences are like thoughts unspooling. They're these very long sentences, but you can keep up with them because you're following a, a thought that is unraveling. And his work, absolutely. The poet Willie Perdomo who's, I used to have a rap group and we used to do shows and we used to go around and stuff. We almost signed the contract. That's another story, but when I decided to write, that's it. I'm not chasing this dream. I got to grow up, etc. All my boys knew that I liked to write. And one of my boys gave me a cassette tape, the audio of Willie Perdomo reading. And they were like, you know, look, this is poetry. You can write this, man. You can write this. You you can tell our stories. You can do this. Listen to this. And listening to Willie Perdomo's poetry and seeing myself reflected, oh, man, that was it. I was like, okay, I can do this. Like, I can do this. But then, and then that also led me down to discovering the last poets. You know what I mean? which was like revolutionary for me 
the last poets. But then, obviously, I had read this book when I was younger and came back to it later, Down These Mean Streets by Pili Tomas, right? And that book was just, a, it was on so many levels. Here's this black Puerto Rican dealing with the intense racism of Harlem, New York at that time, but then also within his own house, within his own, you know what I mean? And I'm like, that's it right there. Oh my gosh, this is it. And and then, but then that, that, that then pointed me to take risks in other areas. Hey, I like this poetry. And then I, one time I picked up Emily Dickinson and I was like, yo, she's dropping rhymes. She is dropping rhymes. Everything she's got is like a verse. You know what I mean? It's like a verse. And then it just, I just went off a cliff. There's so many, it's impossible. It's just impossible. You know what I mean? If I had to say, the big influences, yes, it's James Baldwin, it's Willie Perdomo. And so if, you um, had to, if you had to choose one to serve as your mentor, who would it be? Talk to me. Just because, again, I, I feel, and I read his biography, James Baldwin's biography, and my gosh, I'm I'm gonna say James Baldwin. Because it's hard to go deep, deep within you and then come back out and go to that page. Mm -hmm. It's hard to do that. It's hard not to get trapped there. Explain that to me. What are you saying to go deep within to that page? I like that. So break it down for me. I'm one of those people in the back that don't understand. Tell me more. And and I'll, I'll do this by giving an example. This is one of the best ways I can do it. There's a, a New Yorican poet, his name is Miguel Pinheiro. And he was a, a wonderful poet and also a writer. He wrote a play called Short Eyes, right? About his time in Rikers. He he wrote Miami Vice. You know what I mean? He wrote Barreto. Like this guy was, he was ahead of his time. He was doing everything, screenwriting, plays, poetry. And, but he was living on the streets. He was living in a van. He had a hardcore addiction, had a hardcore heroin addiction. But he also he had some emotional problems because of some trauma in his life. But guess what? His art was fed by those experiences, by his life, by what he knew. And so he would often write in his diaries and stuff, you got to go... Every time you're like, oh, this is a play, this is a poem, this is a story, this experience, this memory, this feeling, you got to go into it. You got to go back into it. And he would say, sometimes you go in, and they use this line actually in the the movie Pinheiro. There's a movie about his life with Benjamin Bratt, I think, stars in it. You have to go in there to get the substance of it. You got to go deep into the trauma. You got to go deep into the pain, into the emotion, the experience, and bring that out. And the sometimes the more times you go into that well, the harder it is to claw your way out. Unless you have, I wish I knew what it was. I, I still try to think of it. 
you have a, a clear edge artist constitution where you're like, I have to do this. Sometimes also you need to step away. My third poetry collection, which is also in here, is called Elegies. And the crux of that book are a series of elegies to my grandmother who passed away, who raised me. And it's hard to read those poems. It's hard. It's four years later. And it's still hard to to keep reading those poems. The reason why I say Baldwin then is because, and and I think he realized this towards the end of his life, the amount of energy and focus and commitment it takes to keep going there, but then keep coming back to the page and writing something where people can see their own pain, suffering, situation, struggle reflected back at them in what you put yourself through. Wow. What an amazing man just for his willingness to do it, but then also his ability to do it so beautifully and and, and, and humanistically, right? In a very clear-eyed and humanistic way, you know? Yeah. We're going to take a brief break, but I'd like you to answer the following question when we return. All right? Based on what you know about the world, your lived experience, does it hurt you to write poetry? If not, why not? I'm here with Roberto Carlos Garcia. Roberto, I'll ask you the question. Does it hurt you to write poetry? If not, why not? There's days when it fills me with a great joy. And then there's uh, days where it does hurt. And it's because it's really out of my hands I don't have a choice. I have to write poetry. I can't even imagine a life without doing it. And so, you know, there's that expression, sing through the tears, right? <laughs> there's that expression, sing through the tears. And so sometimes we poetry through the tears, mm-hmm. right? And through the joys obviously, because it's not all pain and suffering, there's joys. But I'm going to say, yeah, definitely. But then also, that's why sometimes you just got to put it down and step away. Go enjoy a movie, hang out with your kids, get some popcorn, take a nap on the recliner, all of those things. Because especially considering the world I live in now and what I have lived, and survived and I'm here. One of my favorite, I think, hip hop lines I've ever 
heard uttered is when Jay-Z says, I'm shocked too. I'm supposed to be locked up too. You escape what I escape. You be in Paris getting effed up too, right? And I'm like, that's right. Yes, Jay, that's it. So we have to. I have to write. And yeah, sometimes it hurts a lot. Other times it doesn't. And I'm I'm grateful for those times so that hopefully we can balance the scales. Now, are you willing to be hurt by the poetry of others? If not, why not? First and foremost, I'm willing and ready to be hurt by the poetry of others, in particular as a publisher. Mm. A lot of times people will walk up to me and ask, what kind of stuff do you publish? And I often say to people, there's no formula except that I want to be devastated when I'm done reading your work. And that doesn't mean I want to be super sad. That just means I want to have experienced everything. Joy, grief, loss, lust. Give me the, give me all of it. I want to experience it all or as much of it as possible. And so not only... Yes, I'm willing and and ready to be because, again, I'm a student also of the art and I'm seeing how people are doing it and then seeing, okay, how can I deal with what I need to create based off of what I'm reading? Where does your poetic doubt begin and end, I was thinking about James Baldwin. I'm sure he felt doubt that his words meant anything. Yeah. Tell me about you. How, how does that fit in? Where does your doubt begin? And where does it end in terms of poetry? For me, the only time I guess a doubt would fit in is my work reaching who it needs to reach. Mm-hmm. Because I can remember looking for books that contained things I recognize and know within their pages. And so I know that there's people looking for for that. They're looking to see themselves reflected in the work. Mm -hmm. And so for me is, how can I, what can I do to ensure that the work gets to who needs it? And that's where sometimes I feel like the doubt creeps in. Am I writing into the void? And I think every every writer probably feels like this. Almost every writer. Am I writing into the void? Am I reaching who I need to reach? And why or, or why not? People, whether they will be moved or not, whether they choose to be moved or not, I don't know out of my control much more skillful and powerful poets than me have probably wondered the same thing and felt like they they could what could they have done to change the hearts and minds maybe the revolutionary spirit within me is not really concerned with that i'm worried about saving my people's lives period if you don't want to change, you, you got to get out the way, bro. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm not trying to, I'm not going to explain to you my humanity or our humanity, et cetera. And so anyway, 
that's that's the only way where my doubt is at is is the work reaching who it needs to reach that child who's sitting somewhere wondering who he or she is and where they fit in all of this please share another poem In white silence. America remains a matchstick, a bundle of dry wood, kerosene. I post a status you like and comment, but we're just mouthing. A script unfolds, a TV special, and all the while black bodies, dandelions breaking in quiet breezes. Our black bodies, dust peeling off America's skin. Swept from a street corner, a Walmart, a park. Our black bodies dumped in object, other, thing. A cold day of white silence. Of one minute a friend and the next a space. A loyalty strange as strange fruit. A privilege like air through teeth. White sister. Brother. I cannot make you feel. I paint the portrait. I dance macabre. I disintegrate in front of you, but in white silence, there aren't even shadows. Theme. When you write a poem, who leads, you or the poem? <laughs> the poem decides what it wants. Tell me more. So my practice is this. I just write it all out on the page, however much wants to come out. I don't, I'm not trying to make it a form. I don't care how long the lines are. I don't, I'm just getting it out. Whatever it is I'm thinking about, whatever it is I saw, whatever it is, I'm just writing it as is. That's it. My first goal is to just state the thing. This is what it is. And then through the revision process, I'm start. I'm looking for patterns i'm looking for sequence right where do i see a sequence of first this then next after that like where do i see that what kind of images am i looking at what kind of themes are in there that are in conversation with each other and, and it's happening and, and then once i start to spot those things everything else then starts to get cut away until i have the essence of the thing and then that's when i you start to play with your diction, syntax, imagery, line length, and sound in particular. I'm big on sound. I like sound work in, in a poem. I like it to have a rhythm. It's probably from like my rap days. And just music in general. I, I love music. And so, yeah, that's the process. They say. To see the world with complete honesty, one should look to comedians, artists, musicians, and poets. What do you, Roberto, think emerges naturally from your work? What emerges from you? Yeah, I wish I knew. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I knew. I got one for those brutally honest poems. <laughs> what do you mean? He's and you write some brutally honest poems. Like, okay. Okay, then. What are, you, what are you attempting to communicate with your art? 
Oh, so I, I'm honestly just trying to communicate the human experience. Okay. Human experience. Okay. So um, that so what does your work convey about the human experience or condition? The re, the most so there's like when we experience something, right? If we experience it and we're by ourselves, mm-hmm. we're free to respond and feel and react however we however we do when we're by ourselves. There are maybe what? Maybe a handful of people, maybe two, three people that we genuinely react to things the way we do in front of that person, right? But we know how we take things when we're alone. That's like our, that's the person we've been since we were yay high. That when things happen to us, this is how we take them. And it's rare that we let people see that, right? So I'm really just trying to communicate and touch that very essence, right? of who I am and hopefully seeing that reflected helps the reader to touch that part of themselves or see that part of themselves and recognize that's really what makes us human beings is that we have that soul energy, that vulnerability, that whatever you want to call it. And that as soon as we, can show that to each other because we know that we are no longer in the business of harming that sacred energy, that sacred vulnerability. Then we've evolved as human beings, but we, that's what I'm trying to communicate at least in the, in through, I want people to, Oh yeah, that's, that's me in here, in there. So is this poetic empathy? Radical empathy, I think. Tell me more about radical empathy. Yeah, it's radical because some people have been seriously hurt, traumatically. Mm -hmm. So I don't necessarily encourage people to allow themselves to continuously be hurt and traumatized. That's not right. That's not what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. But there's a kind of empathy that puts it on the line and says, here's mine. And you, I'm doing this gesture of opening my heart or my chest up. Here's mine. I see yours. Maybe by seeing mine, you'll open yours up and either let somebody else see you or you see you. Allow you to see you. Because we spend a lot of time by ourselves. We got to get to know ourselves better than anybody else we get to know in this world. Right. So, yeah. Have you written any poems that either humbled or frightened you? Oh, yeah. yeah. The the elegies um, that I wrote for my grandmother showed me about my selfishness when it comes to, when it came to my grandmother. My grandmother raised me I was the first grandson, so I was always very much, I was just very special in her eyes. You feel me? You feel me? So 
I was very possessive of her. She got Alzheimer's and she slowly memory deteriorated. Physically, she was fine, but she just, her, her memory deteriorated. And so it was hard for me to see her like that because she was no longer that strong woman I knew my whole life, who was always with a glance with, come here, sit down for a minute. And, and a little quick talking to would reorient my whole life. She was just, she could do it like that. And not just for me, but for other people. She was such a generous person. And writing those poems showed that to me. And then I had to like, all right, it was about her and her life. And, but also the joy that I missed or was missing because I was hung up on me. And that's what happened. This is so unfair. And you know what I'm saying? I didn't get out of that. And so, yeah, that was, that was a very humbling experience. That was, you think you got it all together, but really, mm -mm. when you think you do, you're tripping and you better go look in the mirror real fast. Please share another poem. Elegy in which is hidden an ode to your beehive updo. What does a Caribbean woman free from the shackles of Trujillo and machismo dream upon stepping foot in New York City? In the photo, you are kneeling, one arm across your thigh and the other holding your purse, staring past the cameraman into a future you couldn't possibly know would include me, your oldest daughter's son stuck on you. And I don't know the appeal of a beehive updo except that you look so beautiful, so confident, so like me when I'm wearing new sneakers and starting out in the evening. Mommy, if you only knew there's a pantsuit revolution happening now, but you were rocking pantsuits in the 60s with beehive updos and platform shoes. And as I burn a hole in this crinkly sepia photo, seeking details within details, I wish I could just pick up a phone and ask you to head over to Walmart with me and we could laugh at the fake updos on sale. And I'd take advantage of the moment to say, no one rocked it like you. A different kind of crown for a new freedom, for a new queen. That was beautiful, man. Thank you. It really was. Thank you. Some poets claim that a poem is like a living creature. Once it's out there, there's not much you can do to correct or improve it. While others edit meticulously, not leaving much from the original draft form, what is your take on the editing process? Having studied Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass in college and knowing that there's 10 different versions because he would not leave it alone throughout his whole life. Right. <laughs> I was like, I'm never doing that. <laughs> I said, I'm never, unless, 
there's something egregious where I feel like, uh, you know what? I don't think what I was. There's actually one spot in a poem where I'm writing as my younger self, my like fifth or sixth grade self. And in describing a crush of that era, we could say the language that sixth grade self used sounds a little bit like grown man type. <laughs> Hold on. Let's right. I had to pull that back a little bit. <laughs> so I realized that after the fact, but that's about it. I am a strong believer. Once you write something and you put it out there, it's with the world. They're your words. That's why I'm glad when I get a book review. But I'll say if somebody writes a bad book review, I'm not going to lose any sleep over that. You read the book. Sorry you didn't like it. There's a whole lot of other stuff you could be reading out there. Thanks. So when it's out there, it's out there. You just got to deal with it and do better next time. <laughs> That's my thing. I'm always trying to improve. I'm always trying to do better next time because at the end of the day, guess what else? Don't let your work out the door too soon. Mm -hmm. Take your time. You revise. Let it sit. Time is a writer's best friend. Just let it sit. Take your time with it. I think throughout our talk so far, We've talked about this world, the good, the bad, the ugly, as well as the indifferent. People go through so much. What do you view, Roberto, as being the role of a poet in modern day society? I appreciate this question because I think there's a reason why if someone is a musician, they want to be a musician and a poet, mm. right? If someone is a, a, a journalist or a politician, they want to be a journalist and a poet. Everybody likes that moniker of poet because the poet really holds the mirror up to, and it's a two-way mirror. As I look at my face and show you my face, I'm showing you yours. And I think the poet and the comedian have a lot in common that way because we use misdirection. Comedians use humor to show you your world and how crazy it is. And poets, we run the gamut. We'll show you heartbreak. We can show you grief and loss. We can show you nature. We can show you horses. A, a poet whose creativity is just off the chain is Rosebud Benoni. She writes, she's incorporating physics and quantum mechanics into her. But she's doing it really well, really creatively. All I can say is that I, I feel the poet's role is to very honestly hold that mirror up and show the beauty of it all. Show the beauty of that struggle. Because I think that until we grow out of this phase, that the only way we learn is through this horrific pain and struggle and, and suffering. The struggle is what gets us through that pain and suffering. 
into a new iteration of ourselves. Let me ask this. If you know about this world and the good, the bad, the ugly, as well as the indifferent, and you're up to date on current affairs, are we as poets required to write about it? Why can't we just write about rocks and trees and uh, flowers and birds? Why can't we, Roberto? You're the trained professional. Talk to me. Why can't we <laughs> write about those things and leave the rest alone? I, I, I think it was Nassim Hikmet who said, in order for me to write about the flowers, the birds, and the rocks, the planes need to stop dropping bombs on the flowers, the birds, and the rocks. Oh, <laughs> so, <laughs> something like that, right? Something like that. And that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, that's like the best, right? <laughs> but then also, there's a Hanif Abdul Rahim, the poet and essayist, super talented brother, right? There's nothing this dude can't do with the word. He's got this series of poems titled "How Can Black People Write About Dandelions at a Time Like This." <laughs> <laughs> So we got both. <laughs> who says you can't? You know what I mean? Honestly, who says you can't? Write those poems. Hell yeah, you have to. But you're also going to write some of the other stuff too. If you're looking at it honestly. Mm -hmm. There's like a whole anthology that came out not too long ago. Black poets or writers and nature writers. Right? Because black poets do that too. <laughs> you know what I'm like, <laughs> so you say we don't always have to write about the trial and tribulation. <laughs> no, not at all. That's that's there. We know it's there. It's there. You know it's there. Yeah, it's <laughs> always there. <laughs> I say write about that stuff. Why not? Have you written a poem that you were afraid of publishing for fear of? possible misinterpretation the day a poet i looked up to clowned me he shook my hand so violently i thought he'd shake me off the map i just finished saying my last name when he smiled real big and nudged me aside he went to a group of black students and introduced himself i stared at my outstretched hand darker than a paper bag and lighter than mulch. Oh, you're not black. And I'm cast off aboard my great-grandpappy's middle passage. His slaver to the blue-skied, salt-sea air of Caribbean cane fields. Same all-inclusive package as our cousins in Virginia. But in this day, we are changed. I am the space left in the wake of the juke move he performed to negate me my blackness and me shaking hands with the air. My second poetry collection is called Black Maybe, an Afro-Lyric. Mm -hmm. And that title comes from the song, I think it was written by Stevie Wonder, but it's performed by Sarita McFadden. So the poem and the book itself is this conversation between Black diasporas and how we... It's interesting because I'm a big believer in Negritude and Pan-Africanism. 
But I also understand that after hundreds of years, we're also different people with different cultural attachments and different cultural ideas. But at the end of the day, our struggle is the same. It is because we are Afro-descendants that we are in this struggle. So for most people, that alone is enough to un unite us, right? But then you have a, a, a theorist like Edouard Glissant who says, Negritude and Pan-Africanism isn't enough. We need to unite in those differences. That's what's going to get it, right? So we have these two kind of philosophies, right? But at the end of the day, we still have issues connecting with each other for whatever reason. Whether you believe Blackness is a monolith, only accessible to some, or whether you're you have an attachment to Americanism that views whether it's Caribbeans, Latinx, or even we have a lot of black people in Europe, particularly in England, right? As not necessarily at the same level with America, right? And with blackness in America. Yes. These are also arguments or discussions, themes uh, that I present in that book, right? And so when I wrote this poem, one of my concerns was like, I feel like I'm airing dirty laundry. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I was like, this book is not written to educate white people on anything. Yeah. That's not the point. Mm -hmm. you know, the book is for us, hence Black may be an Afro lyric, right? It is a lyric to Afro descendants. And so therefore, I said... Shit, there's nothing we don't know. It is going to be what it's going to be. And it, it is based on a real experience. And so I said, I'm, I'm putting it in there. But at first, I did have, I had some concerns about that. Yeah, for sure. for sure. The point of the poem is to say, look how we do each other. But look at how similar, look at this mirror experiences. Where do we diverge? What is it that makes us diverge then? If all of this is similar, why do we end up with a hand out in the air and no hand back? We've reached my favorite part of the program. I view as being a mini poetry concert. This is an opportunity for you to share two, three, four of your works back to back. No interruption from me, Roberto. You're on the stage. Thank you so much. I think what I will do is share one long poem, if that's okay. So this poem is called The Cost, and it's dedicated to the poet Aracelis Germay. And the reason I, I dedicated it to her is because this poem really should have been in my second book, but I hadn't cooked it through yet. And it was based on a conversation we had when we were discussing all of these different layers of racism, internalized, external, institutional, commercial. And she said, there's a cost to all of this. And so the title of the poem is The Cost for Araceli's Gourmet. One, my Black folk believe we fell from grace. We fell walking the path and bad language philosophy, 
or faith brought the Europeans upon us. We paid a price we didn't decide. Now we know the cost. One night, singing in my sleep, I had a dream of a steady rocking like a metronome. In the dream, I felt a rough brown hand on my head and heard him sigh. I am Esteban, he said. I opened my mouth and candies fell out. An offering, cried Esteban. We begin. Half naked in a filthy loincloth, I stood on a wooden deck, moldy mast, Portuguese flag stitched in sail, entire ship in flames and sailing along. Esteban waved, come, mulatto, see the first shore. Tree-dressed mountains, cotton clouds and blue skies, this island and so many like it, clear waters, pink sands, our people dancing and drinking, dressed like lords, grinding each other to calypso, bachata, soca. Our flags, red and blue, black and red, yellow and green. Closer, sand choking on beer and tequila bottles, the bloody shackled feet of carnival dancers. Resorts, shining pools of water in the hills, a white man posed on a flat green patch. I thought he waved at us. He was testing the wind, swung his golf club. Wind-pressed t-shirt over his belly, all-inclusive in bold black letters. Esteban laughed, a bitter laugh. The waters began to rise and rise. Hurricanes spun, a seascape. The carnival never stopped. Costumes and all the storm dragged island folk off land. The resorts and white men golfing blew bubbles and sank to the depths without a sound. The water so clear you'd see middle passage dead at the bottom. What are my brothers and sisters thinking as they dance? After all the declarations of independence, decades pretending white government, white wigs, and all, the European colonies exist unchanged in our minds. Esteban grabbed me by the neck and asked, What do you see in the water? 2. You are 16 and at a pool party. The girls are pretty. The party is a Latino party, but you know the drill. Your own family warns you against dating black people. Yet here you are, the only black person at the party. Latino, yes, whatever that means, but black. As the time to enter the pool approaches, gradually less and less friends engage you. You feel like a guest that's not being asked to leave, but you feel like a guest that's no longer wanted. The other kids start getting into the pool. No one is inviting you. No one is acknowledging you. Foolishly, you start speaking to people in Spanish. You are trying to prove something. No one is listening. You are ashamed of your desperation. Deep inside you, waters are crashing loudly. You leave the party and nobody notices. A few days later at school, nobody asks you how you like the party. They talk about it as if you weren't even there, as if you hadn't been invited. Later, you'll learn about segregation and pools, the one-drop rule, the one-black-toe-in-the-water rule, across all Las Americas. You learn that DNA is genetic memory, just like water. You learn we paid a price we didn't decide. Now we know the cost. Three. My son asks, 
why he's not brown like me. I have the other talk with him about passing and not being able to pass. And don't you even think about passing. Memory takes the moment. I'm running in the rain with friends. The rain stops against my hair, sits like cold wax on a wooden table. My afro is not grass laying under water's weight. Your hair's not soft like mine. You can't do this. The hand, a buffing pad, makes a shine. A lacquered lawn, I want to torch. So I slap my friend in the name of that narrative. White is good, black is bad. Good hair, bad hair. You shall not pass. And I tell my son that. Four. I wanted to wake up. Esteban gave me a bottle of rum. Colonizers gave us these islands, little fiefdoms of diaspora, a trap. Colonizers really loved the weather, but in the end, we became intolerable. Now they rule us with banks. How long to make slaves into a kingdom again? Little islands, diaspora of Babel. And the more I drank, the more Esteban cried, and his tongue crawled out of his mouth, a great snake. Give me the bottle. Donne-moi la beauté. Dame la bouteille. Give me the flesh. We paid a price we didn't decide. Now we know the cost. Fiend. What a, an epic work. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Extremely touching. Thank you. Roberto, do you think you were meant to be a poet? Yes. Tell me more. Tell me why. It's funny because I can't remember a lot from, let's say, age zero to age 10 or 12. But my cousin, whom I reconnected with a few years ago, he said, man, you did it. And I said, I did what? He said, you a writer, man. You did it. And I was like, what do you mean? He was like, man, that's all you would talk about when we were little. I said, really? He's like, every time we want, we had to play something, it was like, I'm a writer and I'm at my desk writing and you guys are going to be doing this. I was like, are you serious? He's like, yo, you always were trying to be a writer. And then little memories will come back. And as I, the more I think about this, yeah, ever since anybody has ever known me, I was always writing something. So that's made to order right there. This can't front on that. What surprises you most, Roberto, about being a poet? What surprises you? How committed to it I am. Mm-hmm. How like life or death it is. It's, I could never not do this. It would be like not living. That's the only way I could say it. There's no other way to live to go about my existence but as being a writer I I never say I'm a writer who's a father who's a professor who's a you know what I mean who does all these things it's all one one it's that much a part of me what did you learn about yourself from compiling this collection Who are you as a result of this collection? I am a very curious person. I'm 
very curious. I want to know and understand everything about our people's experience in the Americas, about if I'm going to understand why I, we are in this predicament today here, I need to understand everything going all the way back to 1491. Mm -hmm. And then I got to get just a little bit before then, right? Because when I went to the Smithsonian Museum of, of African American History, right? There's this wonderful mural on the wall that depicts life in Africa before 1492 or 91. And it shows the different kingdoms and where they traveled to in the world and who they traded with. And basically like life before European conquest and colonialism. And so the chain of events that set off is impacting all of us in New York, all of us. I would say the Ottoman Empire was around for seven, 800 years, right? <laughs> this empire we're living under right now has been since the late 1400s, whether it's 1470 to whatever. And so my predicament today is based off of that past. It's part of it. And so I, I need to know all of it. I wrote this thing and I probably won't be able to find it right away, but I'm writing the story of an experience that has been unfolding for 531 years through ancestral memory, a history written by my oppressor, and the fragmented tapestry of my own life. So that's what my work is showing me. That's what I'm attempting to do in a sense. Where can we purchase the book? It's available anywhere. I know a lot of people are committed to Amazon because it's convenient. <laughs> so you could go there if you want. Uh, Bookshop is a great source also because it helps nonprofit booksellers. Or you can go to flowersongpress.com. And so it's available wherever books are sold. You can go to a Barnes & Noble and order it if it's not already there. Anywhere you can get a book, you can get your hands on Your favorite bookstore, they'll order it for you. <laughs> What's next for you creatively? Where do you go from here? I'm still searching. I'm still digging. I'm still doing research. I'm still trying to learn the ways that, you know, or the methods of survival that our ancestors in this quote unquote new world. I say that with a grain of salt because it wasn't new. It was already here. Right. What are the mile markers that they left for us to find to better understand our existence here and stay rooted and connected to the real motherland of, of Africa. And, and so, yeah, I'm still exploring. I'm still digging and I'm doing that through books, I'm trying to do that through writing books. I'd like to thank you for being my guest. Thank you for having me. This was a blast. I had a lot of fun. You are incredibly talented. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that tremendously. Thank you. I wish you nothing but continued success. Thank you so much. Thank you. I believe that your name will be included among the pantheon of poets. Uh, thank you so much. I appreciate it.
I just sense it. I just sense it. All right. To the listening audience, as I share with you every time we're together, let poetry ring somewhere throughout the land. Good night, everybody. Good night, Roberto. Good night, everyone. Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio is available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also check out the website at qlpor.com.